Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This podcast will contain difficult and real conversations on the theme of suicide and grief. Listener discretion is advised, so please only listen if it feels safe for you. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Open Mind Self-Care Sessions with me, Frankie Bridge. Today's episode is around bereavement, grief, and how to say goodbye. I'm joined by author and psychotherapist, Julia Samuels. Hello, Julia. Hello, Frankie. Lovely to be on your podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. I felt like this was a really important topic to cover in general, because on a personal note, this is something that I don't really know how to deal with. I feel like it's a conversation that most people don't really know how to have. And I think especially at the moment with the pandemic, unfortunately, there are more people losing more people at the moment and they're in extreme situations where they may not have got to say goodbye or have gone to a funeral. So I feel like this, you know, it's even harder than normal right now. And I was inundated with so many questions and so many stories. So I don't know if excited is the right word to use to talk to you, but I'm definitely interested to get a specialist idea on how to deal with these things. And I agree because, I mean, grief is taboo, death and grief is taboo, and people are frightened of it. Mm -hmm. And ignorance means they often don't know how to support themselves when they experience it. And also they don't know what to say to others who are grieving. And so anything that can help people understand themselves and how to manage it really builds connection. And the single thing that matters most when someone is bereaved is the love and connection of others. But because people are scared of it, they kind of step back and away because they don't want to get it wrong. Mm. So I hope the, the one message we can get across today is really the most important thing is to acknowledge the death and the loss mm -hmm. and to say you're sorry. You don't have to try and fix it. You don't have to try and make it better because you can't. The person has died. So what matters is that you dare to go beyond your fear and connect with the person who's bereaved that's probably if only there's any one thing they get from this is that so that was a big question is for people who have a family member or a friend who has lost someone the most asked question was what are the right and wrong things to say or do I think it's much more the intention mm -hmm. so the wrong attitude is to try and make it better. So to try and say things like they've gone to a better place or they're at peace now or, you know, they had a good innings. All the things that you try and kind of say to make the person feel that it isn't as bad as it is. But the bereaved person experiences that as a diminishment of their experience. Right. So it's much better to just say, I'm so sorry that I name the person, say the name, so-and-so has died. And actually, I have difficulty with using the word lost or passed away 
because people haven't been lost. Mm. We lose things every day and we find them again. The thing about we find a difficulty in even saying the word dead. I was going to say, I think we would, I would normally try to avoid that word. Because I think we have a kind of magical thinking that if I say dead, dying, death, it kind of will make it happen. So mm. if I soften it or use a euphemism, that might kind of protect me. But actually, the the difficulty with death is the reality of it. And as the friend or the, the family member of someone who wants to be loving to someone who's bereaved, it's helped them face the reality with them at their pace, in their way, but don't kind of skirt around it because the reality is what they're facing like every day without the person they loved. And would you say that that's the same with when someone gets diagnosed with... A life-limiting condition. Yeah. When someone gets diagnosed and you know that death is is going to happen at some point, how do you talk about that? Because I, I suppose that's a grief and a bereavement in a different way because it's not happened yet. And I feel like I, I definitely know myself, I wouldn't know how to approach that with someone. I mean, the, the thing I say to people is grief starts at the point of diagnosis. At the moment you hear the bad news that you have a life-threatening or a life-limiting illness, that you have breast cancer, your perception of your life is changed in that moment. The minute that doctor says to you, you have cancer or you have a kidney disease or a heart problem, you know, we have this kind of trust in life that we are immortal until <laughs> we realise that we're not. So when you get the news, I call it a living loss. So it's experienced exactly like grief, with all the feelings of grief, of sadness, anger, rage, confusion, denial, fury, bargaining, all the aspects of grief, but it often isn't recognised. And again, with a diagnosis, people say, well, don't worry, medicine's amazing, mm. you know, you're a fighter, you'll get better. Whereas I think what helps people is holding both. Like, I really hope the medicine works and it is amazing. And you must be really scared. What do you need? What can I do that will support you, given that this is really difficult for you? And everybody's reaction to both grief from death and grief from bad news is very individual. And it's learned early. So your kind of default mode of coping always comes into play in extremists. So I don't know what yours is, but mine is I tend to sort of shut down. Yeah. And I normally, first thing I say is I'm fine. And in therapy terms, fine is fucked up, impossible, neurotic and emotional. <laughs> I love that. I did that a while ago. I was nervous about something. And every time someone asked me, I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. And in the end, I was like, oh, my God, how many times have I said fine? Like, you know, someone's not fine when they keep saying it. So that's I love that. That's great. But the, so you have your default mechanism, which may be to shut down. It may be to explode with tears. It may go to an extremist, a panic attack. So you have your first response with the news is the first arrow. And your second response is what matters, what you do with the news and the support you get at right. the time of the death or the news. The second arrow is the one that matters most because you have no choice over the first arrow. That happens to you. Mm. What you do with it, the support you get at the time of it and through that process is what will predict your outcome for better or for worse. Because I've even found it work hard when 
I did a lot of work with Marie Curie and so I went to the hospices. I've and, been there, yeah. And they're actually really nice places, weirdly. I remember telling friends I was going and everyone was like, mm, I don't know how you could do that. And generally the people in there are quite positive. And uplifting. And, yeah, and I met a young woman and she was in her 30s and she had a daughter at the time who was two, which was at the, at the time the same age as my son. And even the nurses were saying, this is a hard one for us because usually our patients are a lot older. And she was very matter of fact when she spoke to me, you know, this is what's going to happen. I've come to peace with it. I've decided not to have any more treatment. And she just didn't want to be in pain anymore. So she just wanted to enjoy what she had left with her daughter I didn't want to cry because she seemed so positive and I felt like that wasn't my that was my sadness you know not hers and I kind of left the room and 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 broke down but I didn't feel that it was right to do that in front of her so do you, should you just try and go off of obviously that's a different situation because I didn't know her personally but your friend or family's feelings and go with that? Or is it best to be honest? That's so interesting. I mean, I think, first of all, that, you know, a death out of time. So the, the circumstances of the death will have a big impact on everybody around. Because if it's a death that is unexpected or out of time, there isn't a hierarchy in grief, what's worse, but there's more complex. So, you know, a young woman, a mother with a two-year-old with a partner, you know, by our measure of life, should never die. Yeah. And also, everyone who's grieving or has been given bad news, it sends off, transmits their emotions that you pick up and you've got your own emotions. Mm. So when you're with people who are suffering, your response to them might be to shut down because it's kind of overwhelming when you see their suffering. But I think your response to her was 100% right because you didn't have a relationship already. There wasn't trust and the kind of years of connection and history that she could trust to be her vulnerable self with you. Mm. But you met her where she was at. So she was like quite matter of fact. Yeah. You were quite matter of fact. And that probably really helped her. If you'd kind of been in floods of tears, she would have had to do the work of consoling you. Yeah. And that often happens and that pisses people off. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, but if it's a friend or a family member, I think it's different. Yeah. Because what you model is also what they can let themselves have. So you can do this thing that I always talk about is holding both, that you can say that you're really sad and you feel really upset and also say, and what do you need from me? What can I do that can help you? So always put it in back in that person's court kind of thing. Put it in their frame. Or you could say, you know, I can see that you kind of are kind of managing right now. I don't know if it's something you want to talk about. Is it something you want to talk to me about? Or is it, do you want me to be the one that is sort of jolly? You know, I had someone mm. who had a, a child that died and one of her best friends sent her films that were funny films men with willies kind of dancing and that, <laughs> you know stuff that was funny lots of funny things and that was the role of that friend to make her laugh and yeah. that really worked for her whereas there was another friend that she had who she went for walks with and she cried and she sobbed and there was someone else she watched Netflix with with soup and tea and so you know, as a friend, you have different roles or a family member and you can't carry, you can't do them all because mm -hmm. it's a bit too much of a burden. 
but work out with this person. So the thing that people get wrong with those that are bereaved, they think they have to know. You don't have to know. All you have to do is to care and to say, I'm here, let me know, what can I do? But not like this awful text, like, I'm here, let me know, what is anything I can do? Which is like mm. asking you them to do the anyway. work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's sort of nothing. But maybe send it like, I, you know, I've got soup I can bring around. Shall we go for a walk? So kind of have give ideas. options. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't have Pre-COVID to Pre-COVID times, can I book you a massage? Can I take your children out so you can have time for yourself? Mm-hmm. And also, you know what level of friend, whether you're the inner circle or the outer circle. If you're the inner circle, your job is there. It's a long haul. You know, if this is a very significant death, this isn't something someone overcomes in a matter of weeks or months. This is where you check in and you're available and close and loving through their grieving process, which is much longer than anyone wants or anyone would hope it would be. That was something that came up quite a lot is people felt that they asked how do they cope when people were there at the beginning and and they've got people to rely on and people come and visit them and they help them. What do they do when that stops? Because I suppose for other people, they move on a lot quicker than the person that's grieving and their lives carry on. So you must sometimes feel like your life has stopped and everyone's kind of carried on without you. Yeah, like that poem, Stop the Clocks. I think that's absolutely right. And it is a bit devastating. Normally the kind of attention and and care lasts about three months. It can only be six weeks. Of course, now through the pandemic, no one has been going through each other's doors. So all the normal, even those connections and bringing lasagna around and going to the funeral together, which is very significant in the support. It really, really matters. That has gone. And so that is much harder. But that moment where you kind of, at three months, the grief really kicks in at about three months is when everyone else has turned back into their lives and getting Mm -hmm. on with their lives. And that's when, if you're a really close friend or a family member, that's when you really have to show up and kind of continue through it, send the text, go for the walks. I think one of the best things is walking and talking because you don't eyeball each other. Mm. You're not sort of saying with your head on one side, how are you feeling? Which if someone says that to me, I'll literally give them a black eye. It's the most <laughs> annoying. It's just a bit intense, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I th- people open up, you know, I do it with my kids. Like if I'm in the car, I find they're more likely to talk and open up or, you know, when you're not face to face to someone, definitely it makes a big difference because you're kind of distracted, doesn't feel as intense. And you're kind of free because you're walking along, you're looking at the ground, your bodies are in rhythm, you're outside, which gives you sort of psychological space, even if it's pouring with rain. Mm. And you can have those silences. You know, you can have times where you're really kind of trying to work out what you feel. Because the process of grief, the kind of adaptation of it, is learning to live with the reality that this person that you want has died. And that is an incremental process. And the process is also, it's sort of twofold. In the On the one hand, the love for that person and the connection and the bond to that person never dies. So the love all, it lives on. So it's finding ways 
to connect to that person through memories that may be wearing their bracelet or their scarf or cooking their favorite meal or going for walks where you used to go for walks or lighting a candle to remember them. Lots of touchstones to memory. It might be writing them a, a letter or a postcard. Whilst at the same time, allowing yourself to feel the pain of grief. And pain, unfortunately, is the agent of change. Pain is the thing that forces you to recognize that your present is different from what you wanted, that this is what has happened. And the things people do to block the pain is often the things that do them harm mm. over the long term, that you need to support yourself and get support to allow that to come through you. And often it comes through you like a wave. And then it has an its own kind of organic process. And you kind of feel exhausted after you've had a crying episode. But then incrementally, you have adapted a bit more. You know, mm. you've adjusted a bit more where you you can breathe. And, mm. and that's what really matters. And I think actually it's the same with mental health, is the things people do to block the suffering they feel, the depression, the anxiety, is often the things that do them harm. And yeah. the, like you, very bravely in voicing it, in facing it, in getting the support that you need, that's how you learn to heal mm. and and come to terms. It, you know, it's there for a reason. Our emotions are kind of transmitters of information to tell us, oi, something isn't right. Yeah. And if it's grief, it's because someone you love has died. If it's depression, something is not working in my life you know a breakdown is a is a breakthrough mm. and we can't ignore those transmitters of information we have to sit up and listen to them and find support for them you know a lot of people at the moment are having to deal with not being able to say goodbye to loved ones whether they've died from covid or, or anything else how are people supposed to deal with that, whether they've not been able to be there when they've passed, they've not been able to be there when they were sick, or they weren't able to go to a funeral? How do people, I just couldn't imagine that. I mean, it really is damaging, because the regrets or the, or the you know, opportunities to say goodbye and to have memories of that and the experience of that is a very significant part of your ability to adapt kind of healthily to the grieving is a, is a natural process. And the things, all the what ifs that you weren't able to do can drive you mad. Like, did he suffer? How, you know, I wanted to say this to him. Why mm. couldn't I do that? And everyone understands why, but there's a sort of feeling of, of of huge, um, it's not so much regret as a sort of very significant part of the transition of someone dying has been completely cut out. I don't think I've said that very very sort of well, but I haven't really voiced it before. But it's something like, you know, there's a good death and a bad death. You know, right. a good death is when you're with the person, you hold their hand, you say you love them, you feel that they're in peace. I think there's a lot you, of feeling as well of, of feeling like someone was alone when they died. I, I don't yeah. think any of us would like to feel that anyone we loved... I mean, obviously there are situations, unfortunately, where people will die alone dependent on what they've died of or how they've died. Yeah. But if someone's ill and you could have been there... I, I imagine that would be really hard to get over, even though you know 
it was out of your hands, I think I'd initially be really angry that someone was able to take that away from me, I think. Yeah, I mean, it it does and it and it haunts you. So the people that I've, I've spoken to, obviously hundreds of people who've been bereaved in this last year, like you said, from COVID and other deaths where they haven't been able to be present, most of them have been able to talk to them over Zoom. Mm. So I support a hospital and the nurses do an amazing job at trying to have as much connection between the patient and the families when yep. they're dying. But it still isn't the same as holding their hand, kissing them on, the, you know, being with them and sort of feeling each other's connection, bodily mm. presence. And I think it means that a lot of people's grief is suspended. And, you know, the thing of of rituals, they're incredibly important in the in the mourning process that you actually have the ritual of going to the funeral, seeing the coffin, being with other people that support you, having the opportunity to say goodbye is in a very important part yeah. of that process. I have always and- felt like until the funeral happens, it doesn't feel final. Not that that's a nice feeling to feel, but it does feel like it. it- not rounds it up. I don't know what the word, right words are. Yeah. But I think once you see that happen and that happens, you can kind of go, okay, this is, this is real. And you're right because psychologically, once you've seen a coffin and you've seen it either be cremated or go into the ground, you can't not know that that person has died mm. because you have the memory. And so when you think of that person, the next memory that will come will be the memory of the funeral. And then it's like that pain, like, ah, They've gone, but that is how you grieve effectively and process it. When you haven't had that, it is surreal. And then you're much more likely to have complex grief that leads to sort of many more psychological disorders. And I think there is, you know, WHO said the next pandemic, which I'm not sure if it's next, I think it's beside this one, Mm -hmm. is the mental health pandemic. And I think a lot of those are people who are bereaved. And what I'd like your listeners to know is that you can get support now. There's a lot of support online. You can go to Cruise. There'll be links on your podcast, won't yeah. there, to lots of organisations. That the sooner you get support and professional support, the better for you. That the longer you leave it, then the more difficult it is to come to terms with it. So I would really encourage people to get professional support and also to ask their friends to talk to them, like have connection. The thing that matters is connection and Zoom or FaceTime, whatever it is, is better than no connection because there's a a terrible spiral you can get into when you're really suffering, where you then are unable to reach for help. You disconnect, you shut down, you don't feed yourself properly, you don't go out, so everything gets worse. But if you have connection to other people, that does enable you to have enough kind of spirit and heart to make life worth living you know love is strong medicine love is the best medicine it's what you need most when you're bereaved when someone you love has died it's the love of others that matters most and so I would encourage friends and family to kind of be in there connect but also for the bereaved person don't kind of just let it overcome you get help for yourself be Mm -hmm. proactive I've experienced this and it came up a lot on the questions is is how do people deal with the loss of someone through suicide? Because I feel like that's quite a different thing in that you know that they've chosen to do that. So I feel like it's it's more it's more confusing. 
It's incredibly complex death by suicide and the numbers of suicides have increased through mm. the pandemic. One of the ways I talk to people about suicide is that it's like a heart attack of the brain so that, you know, you know a young person can have a heart attack that suddenly the the firing in the heart doesn't work and they have a heart attack. And in the same way, you can have a kind of electric storm in the brain and it just completely explodes and that's what leads to suicide. A third of all suicides are unexpected. Two-thirds are with people with pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. And if someone has attempted suicide, they're 50% more likely to try it again. So it's not a kind of cry for help. It's actually very significant. Yeah. And for the family members, it's, you know, those ruminating questions of what if, why didn't I, you know, the guilt is so excruciating. So, and if it's children that are left behind, it's much more complex. So, for someone who's bereaved by suicide, they definitely need support. And there's mm-hmm. papyrus. There are a lot of very good organisations where they can get support. But it's the it's all the unknowns, the the pieces of the missing in the jigsaw that can literally drive you mad. I mean, grief often feels like you're going mad, and suicide turns the volume up on that. And mm-hmm. the suddenness and unexpectedness of it turns the volume up of that too. Being someone that is openly suffered with my mental health like you said I have had feelings of feeling and still do get them sometimes where I feel like my family would be best off without me I've never got to the point where because I have and I'll get to this at some point have a very big fear of death so it's I I have this constant battle of feeling like people would be best off without me but also be being terrified of what's on the other side the nothingness of, of death So I kind of can feel like I can kind of understand those people slightly more. You know, if I talk to friends or whatever and they say it's a selfish thing of a parent to leave children behind or anything like that. And I say, but normally they've done it out of love. They, they genuinely feel that these people would be best off without them. And normally once someone's made up their mind, there isn't anything that you could have done to change their mind or to help them because they're normally the people that keep it to themselves the most Mm. the guilt that people feel is always is always so huge and I think that ends up I think and you know best than me ends up being the biggest thing of that why how how could I have stopped them like you said but what you've said is incredibly insightful and speaking so personally is in fact much more powerful than what any professional can say Mm. and it's true I mean I've spoken to many people who have suicidal ideation like you said and often it is they think that the family are better off without me but also the thing that's sort of pushing that is that the level of the psychological pain is so great that it's unbearable. Mm. It's the only way to quiet your mind a lot of the time is you think, well, that's the only way. It's the only way this will stop. And that, you know, you can understand, there's a logic to that. And the thing, I mean, I could have, I'd like to have a long conversation with you about the sort of pull and push in you between those moments of of suicidal ideation Mm. and fear of death and what the work you can do to support yourself to quieten that voice <laughs> you know <laughs> okay. what is that voice saying <laughs> because it's it's you know that you need to pay attention to it and listen to it it's 
keep squashing it down mm. just means it pops up again. So to some extent, it's pain that's telling you something is going wrong. Mm. And, you know, but that's a different conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but an important one. But the other the other thing for families that I talk to them about is that it's the conflict between their head and their heart. Yeah. Like their their head knows that logically they didn't, it wasn't in their gift, they didn't have control. There were limits of what they could do and it wasn't within them to be able to save someone's life when they'd really made the decision to kill themselves. But the heart feeling is, oh, my God, I love them so much. And if I'd loved them enough, they wouldn't have died. If I if they'd really felt my love, they would never have killed themselves. Mm. And those two sit side by side in real conflict and kind of bash each other. And that's incredibly painful um, for the bereaved. With talking with fear of death, a lot of people messaged in about that is the fear of themselves dying or the fear of losing others. And this is something that I struggle with massively and where a lot of my anxiety stems from. And my my son, who's seven, has now somehow become aware of death. And a lot of the time in the evenings, he'll come into me and he'll get upset and he'll say, Mummy, I'm scared of you and daddy dying. I'm scared of being alone or I'm scared of me dying. And as someone who's not religious, so I have no belief of the afterlife or heaven and hell or anything like that, I find it really difficult to make him feel better about it because I don't have the answer. No one has the answers. So how do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, there's lots of questions in there. <laughs> <laughs> I know, sorry. <laughs> so, I mean... How do you my, talk to a child my, about, about death? So the, the thing that we understand about children is children need as much truth and information as adults, but in age-appropriate language. Mm -hmm. So you can't make your son feel better about death. There's nothing you can say, like you said, that can yeah. make him feel better. The thing that helps him... Well, first of all, what you model is what he learns. So if he picks up from you that you're scared of death, he's more likely to be scared of death. Yeah. Um, just to put pressure on. I know, Sorry. yeah. Sorry We've about that. We've never spoken about it, though, so I'm like, I don't know where it's come from. Children are here to teach you, right? They are, <laughs> all the stuff you don't do, they start putting in your face. Yeah. So I would say to him, ask him, what are your worries? And so his first worry could be, I'm worried that you're going to die. Mm. And I would answer that is like, I can understand that you're worried that I'm going to die. It is unlikely that I'm going to die because I'm young and I'm healthy and I expect to live for another 50 years. But also random things can happen. So what do you want to know about if I died? So you don't kind of squish it down and say, no, no, don't worry, I'm healthy. Don't even think about yeah. it. Tell him his grandparents would look after him or that, you know, so... He has other worries. And also, what does he think death is? Mm. So that you kind of talk to him that about what death is and what it looks like. And I think it's true for adults. So I think often adults feel like children around death, that we're frightened of it and we turn away from it. But actually, if we dare to face it and talk to the people we love most about our own death, about our fears of death, about what if we did die whether we want to have a, a cremation or a humanistic funeral or what we want, that actually enables us to enjoy the preciousness of life much more. And also it protects them from all the 
difficulties that happen after someone's died of all the stuff they didn't know. Last year, I did a trek for Copperfield. So it's all about people who have breast cancer or who had uh, family members and things. So I was, I was trekking with lots of young women and I was astounded by the amount of young girls that were there that had lost both parents at some point in their life. And um, one of the girls actually sent me a message when I put the post up to ask questions. And she said that she felt like it was something that isn't spoken about that much. And she has found really hard to navigate with having, you know, having lost both parents at such a young age. And that did come up quite a few times. And I just wondered how you you help people with that. Because I imagine, I couldn't imagine that even my mum, she's now lost both parents and she's a lot older. And I, even for her, I think, God, that must be so weird to feel that you don't have those people there that you've relied on for so long. I think what's amazing about young people is that you're all much more open emotionally about what you need and your bereavement and your mental health. So there are lots of new organisations like the Grief Network, which is young adults who've been bereaved of their parents. So there, are, there is a louder voice now. But it's all part of the same thing, is this fear around death, that people don't talk about it, don't acknowledge it, because this kind of fear they're going to get it wrong or somehow it's going to make them die, you know, mm. that it's catching. <laughs> and so the young women that you were talking about, it not being acknowledged by other people would make what's already bad much worse. So all people have to say is, I'm so sorry that your mum and dad have died. Mm. And then they can let them take it, whether they change the subject or go or acknowledge it and say, yes, thank you, and let them talk. That All you have to do is open the door to it by acknowledging it. Yeah. And the other one was miscarriage. Yeah. It's something that my sister has had to deal with quite a few times and a lot of my followers brought up. And I suppose that's, um, I mean, grief is grief, but I feel like it's something that a lot of people don't maybe acknowledge as much because we're told, oh, miscarriage is really common. Most women one suffer. Yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I feel is quite played down. So we are made to feel like you have to just accept it and move on. How would you encourage people to deal with that? I mean, it's a very invisible loss. And there's a sort of ignorance, which is, you know, what you don't see isn't going to hurt you. Like you haven't really known this baby. Mm. But actually, the moment you see that blue line in your pregnancy test, you picture yourself as a parent, you see the pushchair, you imagine buying a bigger car, what, when you're going to stop work, how you're going to manage your life, you see mm. yourself as a parent. So when you have a miscarriage, whatever number of weeks it is, you grieve for the future that you had every right to expect. Mm -hmm. And that is a devastating loss. And it's the emotional investment in that pregnancy that will denote the level of the of the suffering for the parents. So for your sister who's had a number of miscarriages, that's accumulative. So every new loss will bring back the previous loss and the fear that, that they're not going to have a successful pregnancy. And so that also comes with it. It's not just you're grieving for this baby, but you're grieving that you're not going to have a baby, that this is, mm. I'm going to be, I'm not going to have a child. Mm. So it's incredibly complex. It's difficult between the couple because men and women grieve differently and men may want to get on and have another baby very quickly 
But the, the mother is like, no way. You know, I'm, I'm grieving this baby. And just as a kind of message to people, if you get pregnant three months after you had a miscarriage and you successfully give birth, that baby is due on the anniversary of the death of the miscarriage, which is very complicated. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so, you know, you can't always choose and a blessing is a blessing, but it makes it cycle. You have There's a lot of postnatal depression for people who've had miscarriages who then go on and have a successful baby because they haven't been able to grieve properly the loss. Yeah, I think a lot of people, out of fault is to say things like, Oh, you can have well, it one. wasn't yet. Yeah, you can have another one or oh, it, at least it wasn't that old or. Or it you shows know, you can get pregnant. Yeah, my sister used to hate that because she could get pregnant, but she couldn't stay pregnant. And people would say, well, at least you can get pregnant. And she used to say, well, that's no use to me because like, it, it doesn't stay, you know. So it's all part of that same error of thinking you're making it better. That is, you know, we've said it lots of times in the last 40 minutes. Like, don't do that. Yeah. So thank you so much. I think for the end of all of these episodes, I'm, I want to kind of end them the same. And I know this is really putting you on the spot, but what would you say that your top three tips would be for listeners dealing with grief or bereavement themselves or others? First of all is to be self-compassionate. Like you feel terrible and often you turn on yourself. So, and seek out the support that you need, that what you need most is love and connection to others. Secondly, that grief is embodied, you feel it in your body. And although it's incredibly un kind of glamorous in a way, exercise really helps, like getting outside, even in the pouring rain, even for only 10 minutes. That when you stay inside and you stay stuck in your suffering, it gets stuck more. If you go outside and move around, you always come back and feel better. And the third one is finding ways to love and connect to the person that's died, like touchstones to memory of maybe writing to them, lighting candles for them, wearing something of theirs, all the things I said before that it isn't about forgetting and moving on. It's about remembering and loving the person that's died and finding a way of allowing yourself to feel the pain of their loss and grieve them while you allow yourself to trust and love in life again. And finally, where should our listeners go if they want to get more information and or any help? So they can go to my website, which is juliasamuel.co.uk, or my Instagram, which is juliasamuelmbe. They can go to Cruise. They can go to the Bereavement Network. They, if they've had a child that died, they can go to childbereavement.org.uk, Compassionate Friends. I wrote a book, Grief Works, which is has got different losses so when a partner dies a parent dies a child dies facing your own death and when a sibling dies so they're case studies of people I've worked with and lots of kind of information and resources and my eight pillars of strength which is the eight things you can do to support yourself when you're bereaved and people have found that very helpful okay thank you so much Julia I found it really um interesting really helpful and I really hope that the listeners had some of their questions well thank you so So much for inviting me on and for raising this really difficult 
conversation, particularly when you find it difficult. I think that's taken a lot of courage and I really doff my cap at you for daring to do that. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Open Mind Self-Care Sessions. I hope this has been really helpful for you. If you've been affected by this episode or would like to find out any more information regarding mental health, please head over to mind.org.uk. If you have any questions which you would also like to get answered, please follow me on Instagram and look out for my stories where I collect all of your fantastic thoughts for each episode. So that's all from me for now, so look after yourself. <laughs>